Welcome to another edition of Humble Perspectives. In this episode, I will be reading chapter 11 of my book, For Such a Time as This, One Man's Spiritual Journey. The Christian life is a journey. For some people, it's mostly an internal journey. It doesn't necessarily involve big geographical moves. Our first five years of marriage in trying to seek the Lord and trying to follow the Lord involved us living in five different states and living in Minnesota twice. So we had six different homes, six different houses that we lived in in five years. Um, the early part of my life when I was too young to remember also seemed to have quite a bit of that the way I heard it from my parents. But we were trying to serve the Lord. Uh, it is a following. Jesus said his disciples must follow him. In John 12, 26, he said, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And that's the great thing we're after. Wherever Jesus is for us, that's where we want to be. To follow after our Master. So, I invite you to join with me as I read chapter 11, Back to Minneapolis. In the fall of 1976, after moving into our apartment, we had found out that Patricia was pregnant again. We were excited, even though it was a challenge for us at a time when we were still thinking we would be going to Papua New Guinea before too long. We still had no medical insurance. But after a few months, Patricia made an arrangement to pay an obstetrician $60 a month for six months for prenatal care, for the delivery, if routine, and for postnatal care. In October, Patricia's parents, Arthur and Ida Bell McKelvey, flew out from Ohio to visit us. Patricia's dad had lived in the hills of southern Ohio his whole life. He had made a trip to Maine to see his oldest daughter, Betty. He probably had visited his daughter, Frida, in Tennessee at one time or another, but he had not been away from the Ohio River Valley very many times, and certainly not to anywhere like Grand Forks, North Dakota. We picked up Mother and Dad McKelvey at the airport, 15 miles or so west of Grand Forks. It's as though I can still hear Patricia's dad marveling as he looked out across the flat farmland. I have never seen so much nothing in all my life. One day during their visit, we drove 135 miles north along the Red River Valley to Winnipeg, Canada, following Interstate 29, which became Route 75 once we crossed the Canadian border. We went so that Elijah, who was then almost four years old, could visit the zoo with his grandparents. We ate a picnic lunch in a city park in which a retired steam locomotive had been parked. That was particularly special to my father-in-law who loved trains and had worked in the rail yard at a steel mill. In order to see more of the landscape, on the way back to Grand Forks we drove south on a road about 30 miles west of I-29 by which we had come north. That whole day We'd been driving through flat land where the vistas were broken only by occasional farmhouses and buildings and the groves of trees that had been planted as windbreaks after the dust bowl. 
Several times on the drive, Arthur had looked around and said, It's so flat, you can see the curve on the horizon. Then, a few miles south of Walhalla, North Dakota, just south of the Canadian border, we unexpectedly drove into the Pembina Gorge. The gorge was stunning and spectacular change after the nearly empty landscape we'd been driving through. Those days with Mother and Dad McKelvey became even more special the following March when we learned that Patricia's dad had been diagnosed with cancer in his pancreas. A highlight that winter, however, was the day four-year-old Elijah came to his mother and asked her to pray with him. He wanted to give his life to Jesus. We were amazed at the changes that we saw in him in the weeks following that prayer. As the time for our baby to be born drew near, we wondered how we would pay the hospital expenses. Then, a month or so before the birth, the doctor discovered that the baby, although head down as it should have been, had its arm across the top of the head so that it could not descend into the birth canal. The doctor was concerned that the baby might be too far down to move the arm. It looked like Patricia would need to have a cesarean section. We called on the community and the Bible study group in which we participated to, prepare, to pray for the baby to change position so that the birth could be normal. Three weeks later, another test showed that the arm had indeed moved and the baby was moving into the birth canal in the normal way. During those three weeks, before we knew that the baby's arm was out of the way, the Fosses and the Johnsons, who by then were selling their house so they could move to the Plow Creek community in western Illinois, informed us that they believed the Lord wanted them to pay the hospital expense up to $1,000. Then Mel and Mary Ann Frank, also selling a home in order to move with the Body of Christ community to Minneapolis, told us that they wanted to cover any hospital expense over $1,000. Stephanie was born May 12, 1977. Holding my son for the first time after his birth had been an incredible experience. I was surprised that holding a daughter was a different thing altogether. Not better, but very different. It felt as though I was holding a delicate piece of art, one that might break in my clumsy hands. My parents came to see us right after Stephanie was born. They drove up to Deer River, Minnesota, where Dad stopped a few days to visit his oldest brother, Roy. Mom took a Greyhound bus across U.S. Highway 2 to Grand Forks so that she could help with the meals and the baby. After a few days, Dad came on over, too. Then a few days later, after Mom and Dad had left, some close friends from Bible College, Gary and Rosie Gerwell, arrived with their children, Danny and Heidi. They pulled up in an old checker cab limo, they called it the Blue Goose, which was loaded down with virtually everything they owned. The Gerwells had come to Grand Forks to study at SIL, and they stayed with us for three weeks until the summer school ended. Although it was good to have them with us, cramming two families of four, including a brand new baby, into a five-room, two-bedroom house tested us all. Five weeks after Stephanie's birth, we moved to Minneapolis. Ron and Patty Landman, who had moved in the apartment below us a few months earlier, were also moving. Ron had gotten an engineering job with Control Data. The company was going to pay his moving expenses. So rather than hire a moving company, Ron rented a U-Haul truck 
and invited us to put our things in with theirs. Thanks to Control Data and the Landmans, we moved free of charge. It was a good thing, too. My job at the university had ended in mid-May. I had no job. Twice after school ended, I had traveled to Minneapolis with other men from the community in order to look for work. On the first trip, I was invited for an interview with Comtech, a computer software company. I had applied for a job as a technical writer. In an effort to use my experience of teaching technical writing at the university as my primary qualification. If I had been hired, I would have been writing user manuals. I did not get the job because I had no knowledge at all of computers or software. The fact is, I did not even know what software was. I had never even seen a computer at that time. On the first job-seeking visit, several of us men had stayed with Bob Cunningham family. I remember arriving close to midnight. Bob met us and took us on a tour of the house. Even though his family and several single adults who lived in their household were already in bed. A short time later, Hal Langevin, a coordinator, the title given to elders in the Catholic ecumenical communities, showed up to welcome us. On the second visit, I stayed in Richland in Richard and Connie Dirac's household. At the time, none of us had any idea that relationships with both Hal and the Dirac's would prove to be important relationships for our family. In mid-June, we loaded the U-Haul, our stuff first and the Lammons to the rear, and headed out on the 315-mile trip to Minneapolis. The Lammons had purchased a house with no job and little money. We couldn't even rent one. However, Larry Alberts had already moved from Ann Arbor to Minneapolis to become part of the leadership team of the Servants of the Light community. He and several brothers had formed a brotherhood, a community of single men committed to live single for the Lord in other words, to remain celibate for the sake of ministry. The Brotherhood had purchased a large old house near the campus of the University of Minnesota. That property included a more modern three-story apartment building which sat behind the house. In addition to serving the community, the brothers planned to start an evangelistic outreach on the campus. Larry, thinking that I would make a good addition to the campus outreach team, had sent word to me through the Grand Forks leaders that Patricia and I were to live in the two-bedroom basement apartment. Therefore, after arriving in Minneapolis when we had unloaded the Lamon's furniture, I drove the truck over to the Brotherhood's house so that we could unload our furniture into our apartment. Patricia and the children followed in our station wagon. We drove up 12th Avenue to the house and parked the truck across the street. Patricia and I took the children from the car and went to find Larry. He was not at home, but one of the brothers took us back to the apartment building so that we could see where we would live. We walked down the stairs and into the basement apartment. There were indeed two bedrooms and also a large room with a small kitchen area at the east end. Every wall was covered with faded beige paint. The carpet in the living room still had some, be some beige in spots, but most of it was black with dirt and grime. The brother showing us around told us apologetically that previous tenants had brought their motorcycles into the apartment using the living room for parking and for repair work. The past owners had not cleaned it up and the Brotherhood men had not yet had time to do so. After seeing the apartment, 
The brother invited us to sit in the Brotherhood's house to wait for Larry. However, Patricia let me know that she wanted to talk. We walked back across the street to the car. In no uncertain terms, Patricia informed me, there is, no ab there is absolutely no way I will move my children into that filthy place. For the next 40 minutes, we fought about that. I was so desperate that I even tried playing the wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord card. It didn't work. It wasn't that I had any more desire to live in that dirty apartment than Patricia, but I thought there was no choice. After all, Larry represented spiritual authority over our lives, and he had decreed it, quote-unquote, for decreed. Besides that, how would I house my family anywhere else with no money and no job? I nearly panicked. Then Larry arrived. Nervously, I approached him. After all, I was barely acquainted with him. He was to be my spiritual leader, and my wife was refusing both his leadership and mine concerning the house. We greeted one another, but before I could say anything else, Larry said, That apartment's not suitable for you and your family. I've arranged for you to stay with Dan and Joyce Dreesen for a few days. What a relief. And what chagrin. Why had I not been wise enough, or man enough, to assure my wife that she was right and that we would have to find some other option. That encounter was a lesson to me. I had begun to discover that although God does give us leaders with spiritual authority, earthly authorities, no matter how spiritual they are, do not have absolute authority. Ever since God had confronted me with my rebelliousness, I had sought for spiritual authority to which I could submit, and it was right for me to do so. However, that day I started to understand that obedience to earthly spiritual authorities is conditional. There are times to ask questions. There are times when one, one must work through issues and come to common agreement with God-appointed leaders, and one may not violate his conscience when obeying earthly spiritual authorities. This last matter is tricky. One needs to be sure that his conscience is properly trained that it is sensitive to the right things, and one must not use the conscience as an excuse in order to get his own way. Larry had arranged for us to store our furniture and our household items in the basement of the St. Joseph Catholic School in South Minneapolis. The servants of light were at the time holding many of their meetings in the St. Joe's gym. They had been given permission to use the basement for storage, and it was badly needed in that season. Not only was the Body of Christ community moving into the servants, but several other groups and individuals were as well. There were at least three small communities moving in from the state of Washington. A small community was moving down from northern Michigan. There were people moving from prayer groups in Iowa, Nebraska, and Wyoming. In fact, in about a year and a half, the servants would grow from about 600 adult members to more than 1,100, plus 900 or so children. Much of this growth was because of people moving into the Twin Cities in order to be part of the community. So it was that we lived for a week with Dan and Joyce Dreesen, their daughter, their household, and in effect with three other community families who lived in the same fourplex in St. Paul. As it turned out, we would soon have opportunity to get much better acquainted with the Dreesens. 
At the end of that week, we headed for Ohio to see Patricia's father, who was by then close to death because of the cancer in his pancreas. We stayed with Patricia's parents in Ohio for about two weeks. Even though Arthur was so sick, his doctor and his family had not talked about death with him. They had not even told him he had cancer. Patricia's brother Joe, the oldest McKelvey sibling and the only brother, had given orders to all that his dad was not to be told of the cancer or impending death. The McKelvey home had five small rooms, a living room, a kitchen, two bedrooms, and a tiny bath. Joe and his family lived about a mile away. Patricia has five sisters, all but one married at that time, most with children. Not all the spouses and grandchildren were there at once, but it was crowded, even with the two houses. We were among the first to arrive, so we stayed with Mother and Dad McKelvey. We did have a few days with them before it got really crowded, and during that time, although I honored the decision not to speak with Arthur about his impending death, I did have opportunities to lead devotions with him and Idabel, Patricia's mother. Believing that I was led by the Holy Spirit, I read each day from 2 Corinthians. In that book, Paul writes much about suffering. In chapter 4, he wrote about carrying death in one's body while giving life to others. It seemed to Patricia and me that while we were there, Arthur came to terms with his death and that we were privileged to play a small part in helping him come to peace about it. While in Ohio, I drove up US-23 to Chillicothe, about an hour north of Patricia's parents' home, in order to help Mom and Dad move from Waverly into the small town of Kingston, Ohio. Other than those two days of moving, we stayed right there with Mother and Dad McKelvey. Stephanie was only six weeks old when we started the trip to Ohio. After two weeks, it became evident to us that for her sake, and for Arthur's as well, we had to get her away from there. There was simply too much activity. We became convinced that even as a baby, she was sensitive to the atmosphere of grief. She was crying almost constantly, and the family understandably wanted her to be quiet. Not only were they concerned about Arthur's well-being, but the crying child was adding to the rest of the family's stress. Finally, we made the decision to go back to Minneapolis, having agreed that for Stephanie's sake we would not be able to return for the funeral. Shortly after we left, Arthur was taken to the hospital for his final days on earth. We arrived back in Minneapolis on July 5th and discovered that the Lammons had offered to have us stay with them until an apartment opened up. Dan and Joyce Dreesen had made a deal to buy a fourplex in South Minneapolis, only four blocks from the Lammons' house. We were one of the three couples who were invited to live there, along with the Dreesons in their household, once the building was in their possession. Two days after our arrival at the Lamman's house, we got the call. Patricia's father had died. I got the word while visiting with Larry at the community's main office on Grand Avenue. As I was leaving to return to the Lamman's house to be with Patricia, Larry asked about our plans for the funeral. I told him, that we had already decided that we could not take Stephanie back to Ohio. Larry said that if money was an issue, we had almost nothing, of course, he would see that we had money to fly to Ohio. I thanked him, but told him the decision we had made was final. Even though he seemed concerned about the wisdom of the decision, he accepted it.
Obviously, Patricia would have chosen to go home to be with her family for the funeral if it were possible. We were, however, I believed, in full agreement that it was simply not right for us to do so because of the baby. Therefore, on July 10th, our 10th wedding anniversary, we were in Minneapolis while Arthur was being buried in Ohio. I don't know how we would have done otherwise at the time. However, the decision to miss the funeral has proved to have had some lasting effects for Patricia. It would be a year before I finally got her to listen to the tape recording of her dad's funeral. Up until then, she dreamed virtually every night about missing the funeral. I think missing that funeral was a significant factor in Patricia's battle with fear of serious illness and death over the following years. In addition, inexplicably to me, it added fuel to the battle Patricia had with trusting community leaders. Somehow, I had shared with her about my conversation with Larry in a way that left her with the impression that Larry had counseled us not to go back when, in fact, he had offered to pay our way. The bottom line is that we did not attend the funeral. Two weeks later, our apartment opened and we moved into 4248 Pillsbury Avenue, apartment 2. Like many Twin City apartments, those in our building were one room wide, with the rooms laid out front to back. This was not a familiar layout to us, except for the week that we had spent with the Dreesons in St. Paul. In our building, the front entry led into a foyer with two doors, one to the right and one to the left, and a stairway to the second floor. Apartment one was on the right, with apartment three above it. We moved into apartment two on the left, under apartment four. We entered our apartment through the door into the living and dining room a long but narrow room. At the rear of the door, a doorway led into a reasonably sized kitchen area. Straight across the kitchen from the doorway, we walked down a hallway with a door to the rear, into a rear foyer with another stairway, as well as a door to the outside. Just before the exit door, the hall opened on the left to a small area with three doors, one straight ahead to the bathroom, the others to the left and right into the two bedrooms. Each bedroom had built-in closets with large drawers below and cupboards above. By late August, all four apartments would be filled with members of our community. Dan and Mary Kay Gleason, friends from the Body of Christ, moved into one of the upstairs apartments along with their dog, Wendy. Frank and Nancy Williams and their son, Stephen, just one year older than Elijah, moved into the apartment directly above us. The Dreesons and their two small daughters lived in the other downstairs apartment, and then the Dreesons also built two bedrooms in the basement of the building in order to house three single men and three single women who were part of their household. By the time we were getting settled into the apartment, our new baby, Stephanie, was crying almost constantly. Soon, Patricia took Stephanie to our new doctor for her two-month examination. Patricia told Dr. Struve about the constant crying. He asked her questions, drawing out the story of the previous two months. Patricia told him about my parents' visit and about the family who had stayed with us for a few weeks in the Grand Forks apartment. She told him about the move and about the housing changes. She told him about the trip to Ohio and the death of her father. The doctor said, this child needs security and stability. She's been through too many changes. 
take her home and change as little as possible in her environment. Don't even change the sheets on her bed unless it's absolutely necessary. That seemed to be an obvious and accurate diagnosis once we heard it. Gradually, Stephanie did begin to get more peaceful. However, she was 11 months old before she finally stopped crying out pitifully in her sleep at night, sometimes awakening herself. I never thought to consider how the same changes may also have added stress to our lives. Sadly, having never lost a close family member, I simply had no understanding of the grief process my wife was walking through. Therefore, I could not really have empathy for her. I was too short-sighted to realize that she would need me to be there for her more than I needed to be before. I was ready to jump into life in the community with both feet. When the opportunity arose shortly after we moved into our apartment to go with other members of the Servants of Light to a conference, serve at a conference in Kansas City, I jumped at the chance. Looking back, I wonder, what was I thinking? It may have been right for me to go, but I was naive at best not to even consider the wisdom of leaving my family for a week while we were making all those changes and had not even gotten settled into our new home. But off I went. The conference on the charismatic renewal in the Christian churches was sponsored and planned by charismatic leaders and teachers from a broad spectrum of churches. Approximately 50,000 people came from the U.S. and from other nations to worship together and to be taught. The full contingent gathered in Arrowhead Stadium for evening meetings. In the daytime meeting, in the daytime, meetings were held in different downtown venues for participants according to their church affiliation. About 20,000 Catholics met in one building. Nearly 10,000 non-denominational people met in another venue with the five teachers from New Wine Magazine. A second large group of non-denominational leaders and people met in a third location. A Lutheran group, an Episcopal group, a Presbyterian group, and other groups also held their own meetings in different gatherings. Like many from our community and other communities, I went to serve behind the scenes to play a small part in making the conference possible. I left home on Sunday and was placed on a service team on Monday morning. Our job was to be available where needed. I was asked to do a few things that week, but mostly with others on the team I waited in a room available if called upon. It did not seem like much then, but later on I would realize that being available, ready to act when called upon, is a vital characteristic of a kingdom servant. In the room that week, I had great fellowship with some fellows from the Love Inn community in New York and some guys from the Agape community in Kansas City. The Kansas City brothers invited me to go with them to a concert in the State Theater on Tuesday night the night before the conference actually began. The Phil Keggy Band from Love Inn was featured that night, along with Paul Clark from the Agape community, who would open the program. What a treat. Phil and Paul had been two of my favorite Jesus music artists since the early 1970s. A highlight of the evening for me was when Phil introduced Bob Mumford, who was sitting in the balcony, and dedicated the song, Take a Look Around, song about kingdom and community to Bob. 
I was free to attend the evening meetings when all 50,000 of us gathered in Arrowhead Stadium to celebrate and worship and to hear the messages of some top-notch speakers. Two unforgettable moments occurred in those sessions. One was the moment when Bob Mumford flipped to the back of his Bible and declared, I took a look in the back of the book and we win. The Holy Spirit fell upon us. We danced and shouted and praised the Lord for nearly half an hour. The other moment was a sober one. Bruce Yoakum from the Word of God community in Ann Arbor gave a prophetic word. He said again and again in numerous ways, Weep and mourn, for my body is broken. This was obviously a call to repent and intercede because of the divisions in the church as a whole. However, years later, I would discover that there were also serious divisions behind the scenes among the leaders of that very conference. In reflection, it seems clear that, yes, we were to pray for the divisions in the larger church to be healed, but also that we should have been repenting and interceding that our, our own house be brought into order. I returned home the following Sunday and went back to job hunting.